Hello and welcome to our podcast, Vanguard at Dawn. My name is Elisa and I'm here with my co-host, Ren. Hello. And today the title of our episode is The People in the Pews. In this episode, we will be discussing the complicated and yet instrumental role that religion played during the Harlem Renaissance. And while religion was important during that movement, it was and still is a cornerstone in African American culture to this day. As its relevance transcends past the Harlem Renaissance, this podcast will be more of a social commentary than strictly historical. As always, friends, for this Harlem Renaissance series, go check out the last three episodes we have done for full context. All right, so before we get into the social commentary bit, let's give y'all some historic facts to work with here. We have not really discussed religion like at all yet in relation to the Harlem Renaissance. However, we did briefly discuss something in our Gladys Bentley focus when we brought up the Abyssinian Baptist Church. Here's some background on the church and why it's so very important to this time period, but also it still holds a lot of relevance today. First of all, to read straight from the Encyclopedia of the Harlem Renaissance, which we will leave a link in our show notes to the electronic version of, it says, During the Harlem Renaissance and the Great Depression, the largest, most socially active, influential, and political black congregation in New York City, as well as in the United States, was that of the Abyssinian Baptist Church, led by Adam Clayton Powell Sr. from 1908 to 1937, and by Adam Clayton Powell Jr. from 1937 to 1971. Now, this church was not founded in 1908 when Powell Sr. took over, but rather it was founded by African American and Ethiopian Americans 100 years before, in 18 and it was originally in Lower Manhattan. So it's important to acknowledge that this church is set apart as a great importance to the black community right away because it was established for black people by black people. And that's a key factor that we will circle back to in just a moment. But anyway, the church decided to move uptown, which was the Harlem district in response to the Great Migration. And that name I just said before should sound familiar, Adam Clayton Powell Sr. He was one of the many loud home homophobic voices at the time and arguably he could be seen as the main pushback to the queer scene in Harlem because it really can't be stressed enough how very influential he was. And the Powell's influence spans far past Powell Sr.'s reach because his son, Adam Clayton Powell Jr., did not only take over running the church after his father stepped down, he also became the first black person to be elected to represent New York in Congress. Now, going back to Powell Sr., he came up in relation to Gladys Bentley because he was super homophobic, which should not be minimized. But there were reasons why he was so influential. This dude was really involved in black activism and he provided a voice for black people within a religious context. And that is really dope for so many reasons. Because something that was very, very, very prevalent in the black community was being kept out of high positions within a church setting. Think Back to all the times we've mentioned slave songs, which go by many different names, like Sorrow Songs by Du Bois, and another very popular name for them was Spirituals. They were not called that by happenstance. Often, these slave songs were based around Christian themes, or even had been inspired by religious hymns. Take Go in the Wilderness, 
the song we discussed the most heavily. If you will recall, that song was based off of an old hymn, and the first line of its chorus was, if you want to find Jesus, go in the wilderness. So, it's clear Christianity played a very big role for slaves in North America. Not only because white people were trying to force the religion and its practices onto them, but because of what Christianity in itself promises to those who follow it. Those who are familiar with what is considered a traditional Western Christian afterlife know that all souls are seen as equal in the eyes of God. So, even if one was born into the merciless life of slavery, they can achieve a place in heaven so long as they lead a good Christian life. And, if they wish to uphold God's will on earth, it also means fighting for that equality to be implemented on earthly soil as well. And let's never forget or minimize how that very notion was exploited by slave owners. They tried to use and manipulate Christian teachings in order to enforce their own agenda of upholding slavery. We discussed this pretty intensively during our white supremacy unit that we kicked off this podcast with. I also think that that same rhetoric of using God to justify the evils of slavery can provide room for the made-up notion of a happy slave. What we mean when we say Christianity was important to the black community for a long time is not that gross notion of them feeling fulfilled by serving as a dutiful slave to their earthly master. Absolutely not. What we mean is, having something else to put their faith in besides the bitter reality that they were subjected to gave them hope. And it also promised them a form of freedom and equality, not just in the afterlife, but in the eyes of the only thing that truly matters to the heart of a devout Christian, God. It's important to have that clear distinction in today's lecture segment because while there is that very real and very disturbing layer of how white supremacy tried to find ways to use Christianity to disenfranchise slaves for years, that's not the layer that we are examining. Today, we are talking about the hopeful part, the part that was empowering to the black community, not only during slavery, but long after the slave era ended as well. But anyway, now that that's been said, let's go back to the this problem of how black people were not allowed into higher positions at the church and how that affected and in many ways still affects the black community. In January of 1920, a very intriguing article by a man named George Joseph McWilliams was published in The Crisis magazine. For those of you who may not be familiar with The Crisis, it was the official magazine of the NAACP. If you are interested in conducting your own research or would like to take a look of what a standard issue of The Crisis looked like, we will be leaving a link to the electronic version. In this article, McWilliams writes about the egregious discrimination that he faced as a black man in America while trying to become a priest. McWilliams had been a devoted and strong Catholic for years. He had studied and held a deep love for the Bible, and he felt it was his calling to become the leader of a Catholic church. But every door seemed to be closed to him. Each person he asked to help him in his quest turned him away or pointed him in a different direction. 
He spent years attempting to fulfill his calling until he was essentially told by a man he called Father Park that there was no school he could attend and no church would want him. Father Park literally told him straight up that other church leaders would not stand for a black priest. And let me tell you, this Father Park dude had some ignorant audacity during this conversation he had with McWilliams. Because Park also told him that if he didn't accept the decision of the church, then he was vain. Like, what? If you don't accept that the church is racist, that sounds like a you problem. You gotta look inward. Um, gross. Ahem. <clears throat> and now... <laughs> Here's where we gotta talk more in depth about the good old Catholic Church. Boy, this is gonna be fun for me. <laughs> I can already feel my dead Catholic ancestors trying to strangle me from their grave, but here we go. So, there is a book called Authentically Black and Truly Catholic, The Rise of Black Catholicism in the Great Migration by Matthew J. Kressler. In an interview article from The Atlantic, published in 2017 and conducted by Emma Green, which is very well written and we will leave a link of course, there's a line that sums up what the book intended to do. This is a quote. Kressler's goal, he said, is to show the diversity of black religious experience in America, including upending stereotypes about what it means to be Catholic and what it means to be black. In his book, he points out how black people who are members that joined the Catholic Church during the Great Migration migration in particular, in many ways were not trained how to be Catholic, but rather had to conform and fit into a European version of a Catholic, which opens up an interesting conversation about what exactly it means to be Catholic and what it means to be Black. Many have a set notion of what a Black church looks like and how Black people practice religion. You might picture a loud environment where those sitting in the pews are very vocal and expressive, where they sing energetically and happily. But if that is what you are picturing, it has less to do with that church being a black church and more to do with it being Baptist or Methodist. The same practices can be said about most Protestant or even non-denominational churches. Energetic music and a loud room with everyone feeling free to speak and sing when they wish as long as it is not overly disruptive to the sermon. And as the majority of black Christians in the United States are Protestant, it makes sense that many black churches do carry out similar practices. Yeah, and I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of going to a Catholic mass or service of any kind, but let me clue you in just in case you don't know. If you ain't answering the Father when prompted to, or if you ain't ominously chanting some Hail Marys, then you ain't speaking, fam. So you can imagine me. The first time I went to church with a friend who was Baptist, I was so freaking confused as to why they had the nerve to smile or sing in a way that sounded like they were having fun. I was like, um, y'all, this is church not a party. So sit there, think of your sins, and be miserable. But anywho, <laughs> going back to Kressler's book, he brings up how many black people kind of attach a specific form of Christian worship to a black identity in the United States. And that came into play for black people who felt torn between their own identity versus the strictness of Catholic practices. To quote Kressler from the interview I mentioned in regards to that, he said, 
There's a whole range of what that means, integrating African practices and symbols and iconography into Catholic life, or including Afro-Protestant practices like gospel music and liturgical dance. And this also came into play, this complicated relationship between Christianity and Black practices, according to Kressler, during the Black Power movement in the 60s. He said that what many people were asserting during the movement was that Black people as a community were, quote, connected to African-descended people from across the world. What it means to be black is to be rooted in this Afro-Protestant black church tradition. What it means to be black is to have this distinctively black spirituality. Adversely to that belief, and to back up Kressler's point, speaking from my experience as a black person who was raised Christian and continued practicing Christianity even after leaving home, I did not find myself often in a Protestant church. For my own journey spiritually, it was not inherently connected to my identity as a black individual. In many ways, tying a specific form of spirituality to what it means to be black is dangerously close to gatekeeping the black community, which is, quite frankly, never the vibe. Not a vibe! That being said, it is surely worth giving voice to and acknowledging the importance of a strong black church and what it can do in regards to uplifting the black community and what that means for black representation. A lot of the most successful forms of black media have undertones of common themes or happenings within black churches. Take, for example, the beloved and sometimes problematic work of Tyler Perry. The Medea plays and movies are some of the most well-known pieces of black media, and they are all overtly Christian. Specifically, they adhere to the idea people have of a black church. And while we definitely don't want to exclude anyone or gatekeep what it means to be black, there is ample evidence of a culture that can bind black people together, even if that culture is separate from our own personal spirituality. Yes, and that leads us to why the Abyssinian Baptist Church was amazing for the black community, especially in the wave of uplifting black voices that was the legacy of the Harlem Renaissance. As you can see, through George McWilliams' experience and countless others like him, black people were kept out of running the church and therefore decision-making for the church. And something that is found in almost every Christian denomination is the importance of the church and God. So how can a church expect you to want to be a part of it when the church actively does things to keep you out of it? The hypocrisy is freaking stifling. I mean, this liberating and celebratory nature of the Harlem Renaissance was sure to question how black people were often only to be met with churches that don't treat or see black people as equal. The same cannot be said about the Abyssinian Baptist Church. That's why it was so wonderful that the church was run by and for black people. One of the main platforms of Catholicism and really Christianity as a whole is its tagline of universality. Like that Father Park dude that McWilliams had to deal with. That thing he said about if McWilliams didn't accept the racism in his church, he was vain. 
Um, yeah. Great logic there, buddy. Did you run it by your other white male friends and did they tell you it sounded good? But without proper diversity within representation, if you do not have people from all walks of life, people from different races and backgrounds and ages and sexualities, how can you possibly achieve the universality that you promise? And I also think that this is indicative of so much more than church communities. Because, like, just think about representation in general. A quote from George Joseph McWilliams really drives home the point that I'm trying to make. And it also is how he closes out his article that he wrote into the crisis. We are governed by the most prejudiced men on the continent who impose their conditions upon us and tell us it is God's will. And this discrimination is far from absent in today's church society, which should not be shocking. Some of the most oppressive and hateful groups can be found at these same churches that are supposed to teach love and acceptance. One thing I learned recently was that black women are among the most religious groups in America, and yet this is not reflected when you see church leadership. Combining this with the fact that black women are among the most educated demographic as well, and you might question why black women aren't running every church in America. But to get back to my main point, founding or joining a black church can alleviate some of the discrimination black people would feel attending services at any other church. Just like in any other social situation, there is a natural discomfort when you're surrounded by people who have so many prejudices against you. If you don't feel safe and comfortable in that church, how can you worship, which is a highly personal experience, which is a time when people can feel the most vulnerable, especially considering how important privacy is in the black community. It stands to reason that black people would not only flock to black churches, but that this would be reflected in the culture when it is historically a place where they can feel safe and have hope that life outside of church will get better too. And with that, we are going to wrap it up today. <laughs> We're going to take a break, get some tea, and we will be right back with you. And now a word from our sponsors. This week is brought to you by Avisa Sleep Paralysis Demon. Have you ever found yourself on that strange line between wakefulness and sleep? You lie, frozen, and out of the darkest corners of your room. You spot it. Shia LaBeouf. Maybe it's something crawling from beneath your furniture. Or a silent watcher from the corner by your door. If this sounds familiar to you, you may have also experienced the silent terror of sleep paralysis. If you want to make sure that Elisa can survive the reign of these terrifying creatures, then you can donate to Ren and Elisa's Ko-Fi or join their Patreon. Elisa's sleep paralysis demon. Because it's not only anxiety that goes bump in the night. All right, we're back. Um, and if you haven't noticed, yes, we are doing spoopy theme ones <laughs> for Halloween because gosh darn it, I do love this season. <laughs> How are you doing today, Elisa? I'm doing amazing. And I don't know if it's just because we slept in today or because I had a random day off or because we have a new cat in the house. Oh my gosh. First of all, she does not have a name. So that's to come. Lena and Elisa still have not decided on a name. It's so hard because her personality is just so 
like fun loving and there's a couple names that could really like suit her so well yes and if you follow us on twitter i will be posting a picture of her there soon probably on the sunday after this episode gets released so look forward to that please interact with us (laughs) (laughs) please (laughs) in case you're wondering i am bribing you with a cat picture is it working i sure hope so Yes. So how are you doing? Um, I'm doing good. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing okay. Yeah. Franklin, you know, he's getting used to having another cat in the house. Territorial things, you know, cats always kind of struggle with that. But I feel like his just he's such a laid back personality kind of cat that as soon as he's stressed for like a few minutes, it passes him so quickly and he's already down to just bull again. He's just like, hey, man. I'm here and I enjoy myself. <laughs> like he's back to purring in seconds. Like yeah. so I think that he will find his way in the new the new situation of having a a, a new ca- a new cat in town. What kind of tea are you having today? So I'm having it's a play off of a drink that I used to make for myself when I worked for a certain popular coffee chain restaurant. It's it rhymes with Barbucks. Yes. Star dollars. Yeah, um, star dollars. <laughs> yes, and it's okay. I worked with its. Um, some might argue superior <laughs> competition, which rhymes with bumpkin. Bumpkin, <laughs> which kind of actually sums up the difference between the two. <laughs> yes, but a drink I used to make for myself, which I don't know if it's super popular or not, but it's steamed lemonade. With mint tea, and I added ginger because we're recording today. So, yes. So, I'm having steamed lemonade with mint tea and ginger. And that might sound crazy, but genuinely from a tea connoisseur perspective, it's actually not crazy. Lemon is a wonderful natural pairing with tea, so it's actually quite delicious. (laughs) Also, I have to add this. I love how when we asked each other how we were doing... Instead of talking about how we were doing, we talked about how our cats were doing. (laughs) I didn't notice that until just now. (laughs) Well, today I am having a Thai tea, like pre-made powder Thai tea blend that we got from our local Asian market. And oh my gosh, it's so good. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. I could drink it every day, all day. Yeah, I'm going to have that later. Yeah, it's like a, it's a, a classic already. And I have such an aversion to really sweet teas. Like I can have them, but I can't have them frequently, except I could have this one all day, every day, always. Like it's just so superior. You know what, Elisa? Today, I'm going first with my artist. I'm going to switch things up. We're yeah. switching up the order. I'm doing it first. My artist this week is Forrest. He released an album this year called Effortless. I highly recommend that you listen to the whole thing like wow i literally love it it was a true experience to listen to it in its entirety and if you go on his about page on spotify it simply says just happy to be here yes the song that i am choosing this week is better from his latest album i don't want to go into too much detail about his style because i feel like it's something that's really just felt in the moment and giving too much description to it kind of just doesn't fit the vibe of his music music so go check him out and get ready to feel just happy to be here my artist this week is inspector nerd on instagram she is a black 2d animator who is currently in grad school at ucla 
I found her on the Blacktober tag on Instagram, which is an alternate October art challenge that some Black creators are doing, especially considering the controversy surrounding Inktober this year. She posts a lot of comics that deal with mental health, intersectionality, and just the everyday struggles she's facing in life. It's very emotional and personal, and yet I feel like it's very relatable content. I definitely recommend checking her out. Love it. Okay, so I will talk about our activist for this week. Our activist this week is Jamie Margolin. She is currently 18 years old, and her main platform is climate change. And let me tell you what. She has some awesome info about how to make real change when it comes to the wasteful ways of our society. She also just got a book published this year called Youth to Power, Your Voice and How to Use It. And while I have not personally read it yet, I am looking forward to doing so very soon, as it has incredible reviews and hers is a voice worthy of being listened to. Not just her voice, but young activists in general. And it's amazing to see people like her out here doing so much amazing work and getting young people involved and empowered when it comes to their future. That's really the thing, isn't it? The youth is our future, and we need to always have the youth in mind when it comes to what kind of world is left behind for them. Climate change is terrifying, but for the young people of today who have to acknowledge the kind of world that they will be stuck living in if we don't change our ways is straight up a horror movie to even imagine. And we all collectively owe each other, our youth, and our future to fight for such an important cause. Yeah, climate change is honestly one of those things that when I think about it just genuinely scares me. Same. You see scary things in the news like fires and stuff like that. That's not all that climate change comes with. I mean, literally, it's not just fires. What the fire is burning away is our oxygen source. Like, we won't be breathing. Why are people not getting about this? It's terrifying. Yeah, earthquakes, floods, fires, famine. (laughs) You know, like biblical, terrifying, ominous things. Terrible things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't wait for our biblical apocalypse. Same. Anyway, (laughs) tell us about the news, Elisa, because that's just as terrifying, actually. Loki. So for news this week, we're going to be talking about the potential confirmation of Amy Barrett to the Supreme Court. Now, Judge Barrett is genuinely terrifying for so many reasons. I've watched her speak in these hearings and she's intelligent, but so deeply biased and political. She will often refuse to answer questions and deflect by stating she won't answer hypotheticals or she will consider all the facts of the case and she can't answer what she believes right now because she hasn't heard the facts of the case. And that sounds good to some people when she first says it, but the whole point of this hearing is to question her beliefs and make sure she will do her job properly and to ascertain whether her personal biases will be reflected in the decision she makes makes for the Supreme Court. She has given us absolutely nothing to work with, and what we do know about her is deeply troubling and has so many potential negative consequences for LGBTQ plus people, people of color, and women, literally anyone who's not a straight white man. 
Who's surprised? In addition to what she may do directly, I also fear that she may further embolden conservatives in the Supreme Court to overturn landmark cases like Roe v. Wade and Obergefell v. Hodges, which protect abortion rights and same-sex marriage, respectively. Not only that, but conservative-leaning Supreme Court decisions might also encourage bigots like racists, sexists, homophobes, and the like, because it will grant legitimacy and and legality to those ideologies. And because she is intelligent, there will be white feminists, and I do not mean feminists who are white, I mean feminists who have historically and will continue to sell out people of color and only advocate for issues that benefit them, they might advocate for her and be happy at her confirmation just because she's a woman. She is dangerous and I'm worried because it is more than likely that she will be the next appointee on the Supreme Court and that job is one that lasts a lifetime. This would secure the Trump administration's influence over this country far beyond the short reach of his presidency and into this generation and the next at least. Okay, so literally while listening to Elisa's amazing spiel she just did, I was also scrolling through my timeline and guess what I just read. Conservatives are defending her by saying that she was asked the same three questions throughout the hearing, that the whole hearing was a joke, and that she answered really well and that they should just swear her in. Okay, I'm sorry. Hang on. You may have felt like they asked her the same three questions over and over again, but literally it was because she never answered any of them. So of course they asked her questions repeatedly because she didn't do anything. There was no answer. Yes, and it wasn't the same questions. It was different questions, but they all happened to be in relation to social issues exactly. and upholding our rights to choose certain things and maintaining the traditions that we have in our democracy, like, you know, the peaceful transfer of power post-presidency. Yeah. Like, even that. That was, was her a softball question. It was. And, like, the thing is, the fact that we have to be afraid of that living in democracy with somebody like Trump involved, I am legitimately terrified. If this guy doesn't get what he wants in November, he's not stepping down easily. That's terrifying. And as somebody who lives in a democracy, I should never have to deal with that. None of us should ever have to deal with the person in power not stepping down when they need to. Yes. And they asked her that question multiple times. And each time she was like, she refused to just say yes to a yes or no question that the answer was obviously yes. I think that also happened when they asked her about making sure that people don't discriminate um yeah that based voting, on race yeah that voting rights are protected regardless of race that was literally part of the question like it wasn't necessarily worded like that but they literally asked her about making sure and protecting those who need protection when it comes to getting their votes counted or being able to vote and she's like i'll consider all the facts what do you mean you'll like, consider all the facts the fact is everybody should be able to vote and also here's the thing people who are like these questions and answers are like the same thing no these questions are complicated questions 
that deserve well thought out and thorough answers. I'm not sorry that it's a complicated field that she'll be working in. It's complicated and it's murky and she needs to have answers that make us feel like she's actually going to help anyone. And she has this air of high-handed sophistication where she's so intelligent that she doesn't need to deign to explain her positions on anything or to take notes at these hearings or literally anything. She doesn't need to explain herself to such lowly people as ourselves. But anyway... (sighs) That is neither here nor there. <laughs> Actually, it is. It's very relevant. But that we're going to wrap it up <laughs> and finish today's episode <laughs> eventually. Be sure to check us out on Patreon and Ko-Fi. But if you don't do either of those things, you can make it up to us by voting. Please vote. Please, please, please vote this November. <laughs> Yes, please go out and vote. This election and every election are so important. And I know part of the voter suppression that we're subject to here in this country is that they have us vote so frequently, which is a whole nother thing. (laughs) But please go out and vote and we will be out there voting too. So as alone as the political spectrum, quote unquote spectrum, in America can make us feel just know that there are other people out there and we just all have to go out and make our voices heard. They're not going to listen to us willingly. We have to force them to hear us. And part of how you do that is going out to vote. So please. (laughs) Yeah, and be ready for your state questions. I feel like a lot of people get so wrapped up in the national election, we forget how much power we do have in local election. Please read state questions. Know what you're voting for for that as well. Because when it is time to vote, it's not just going to be them asking you about who you want for president. (laughs) There's more research to do. Please do it. And you can look that up on Ballotpedia. They should have more answers for what's on your specific ballot. But yes, that is where we're going to leave this week's episode. Be on the lookout for our topic for next week. Spoiler alert. It's also on the Harlem Renaissance. Oh my gosh, really? (laughs) And we will be posting about that topic sometime during this week. All right. Um, That being said, I think that's it. Bye.